Hello, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. Please come on in and have a seat. Enjoy the night. I have a pretty bad cold, I'm not going to lie, so I'm going to need you guys' help to sing tonight. We're going to start with the Lucinda Williams song that we've done a few times before. This is called Blessed. what he preached we were blessed by a poor man said heaven is within reach we were blessed by that girl selling roses who showed us how to live we were blessed by the neglected child who knew how to forgive we were blessed by the battered woman
Thanks, Mark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. I'm Tim. It's good to see everybody here on this uh, Labor Day version of Emmaus Way. And you know, this is a, a sunny Labor Day weekend, so folks are probably just cru- cruising in from the sun and all those things. So anyway, it's great to see you tonight. Hey, tonight before we jump to just a few announcements and things like this, the crew behind me here uh, leads us in our, a little portion of our worship gathering every night. It's a chance for them to kind of speak into what we do. And so uh, I'm going to turn over the doxology, uh, doxology to Joel. Are you doing that tonight? Starting at night? Thank you, sir. You guys join them in singing. Praise God. guys. Speaking of kids, we've kind of had this outburst of birthing going on in Emmaus Way. Uh, so congratulations to everybody's had a child. Uh, I have folks heard, you know, Dan and Elizabeth delivered yesterday. Uh, I think uh, I, 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 he gave me this. Deta- I, it was He said 21 inches, but I read it 21 pounds. And so uh, I said a really quick prayer for Elizabeth. <laughs> But, but I think it was 21 inches and like six pounds. And they had said, it's a daughter not named. I suggested Timelina. I felt like that's a, a very, very appropriate, beautiful name. Uh, I'm not sure that one's going to stick. But I, but I think I got the text yesterday morning. So uh, he said everybody's doing well. So congrats to those guys. And again, welcome to Emmaus Way. One of the things in terms of describing Emmaus Way as a community is one of the things that we take very seriously is that. That, uh, we're people who are worshipers with the whole of our lives, but we gather uh, regularly with the purpose of gathering around a text where we uh, dialogue, speak, speak, and listen to each other's voices. We take very seriously, seriously the idea that uh, understanding God's word and embodying it with our lives is necessary to hear the experiences of others. We also gather at the table every week. It gives us an opportunity to enact and expect and hope and to live into God's kingdom. And one of the things that we're deeply sensitive to is the idea that God is redemptively operating in Durham and in this greater community. And one of the things that we're always doing as a community is is listening with great intentionality of how we can be a part of that work. We don't presume to be initiating that, but we're always exciting to, excited to follow in and to lean into the work of God in this space. And so it's always great for us to, to gather together. We'll say this a lot in the fall. It's the first of the year. This is a, a youngish community, lots of transition. Uh, if you're new, we've had lots of people kind of coming in the last several weeks. There really aren't a lot of old people in, uh, in terms of been around for a long time at Emmaus Way. Uh, uh, we are a community that uh, certainly is deeply connected to the universities around us and kind of the rhythms of the academic year. There's a couple things out front that you may want to be aware of. If, you, if you'd like
like for us to know your email and want to be a part of our kind of weekly, we send out an email once a week of things that are going on. The yellow card is the card for that. You can fill that in and throw it in the bowl over there. The green card is just something to take if you want to know a little bit about Emmaus Way, how to get connected, who are leaders or people that are involved. Most of everybody, a lot of emails are there, including mine. Uh, We're always excited if you want to email us and grab us for a cup of coffee or, or whatever to hear more about this community. We're always excited to do that. And there's also uh, descriptions of things, that, uh, ways that people get connected. We have, I think, four or five or six small groups that meet during the week. We have a pub group that meets on Thursday night. The information, all that's on the green, the, the green card. So that information is here. Um, I want to pause for a quick second. Is there any other announcement that I should have known, known of, but I don't? So this Thursday, we'll be having uh, um, it's the Metro Caucus for uh, Durham CAN, sort of in preparation for our delegates assembly at the end of October. So uh, Durham CAN is a grassroots political organization that we partner with. And if political organizing is something you're interested in, you'd like to find out more about it, these smaller meetings can be a great way to do that. So uh, Thursday night, 6.30, I said last time it was at Eno River as well. It's at Watt Street Baptist, which is right up the street. Um, and a group of us, I'm sure, will be there and then go straight to the pub afterwards. So 6.30, Watt Street Baptist Church, Germany. And there was an exciting kind of Durham can development these last few days that I think is very much in the works. We, You know, yes, we've been in conversation uh, the the clergy caucus and others with uh, the city manager about policing in Durham, uh, the inordinate amount of, of uh, stops and searches and things that happen to non-white people in our community. Uh, the statistics are, are actually quite horrific. And so one of the things that is now in the works due to kind of that kind of push and delegation is that it looks like Durham is going to be moving toward a, uh, a written consent for, for, for searches, not bills and things like that. And that was part of the clergy caucus and others in can that have been doing that and we're really excited about that uh, we feel like it will at least inform people um, of, of what their rights are in those circumstances and and one of the things that we're deeply sensitive to is is combating the kind of systemic racism that tends to organize our society so that's a good thing that Durham can has been working on I wanted to say Mark Williams is my hero uh, this past week he uh, started his new job has been sick all week uh, after last week I, I will strongly advocate last week's podcast since I had nothing to do with it. Uh, but Mark, uh, we've been doing this series, The Gospel According to, and Mark did a, an amazing evening on The Gospel According to Bruce Springsteen. Just an incredible band, music, thoughtfulness, discussion. Uh, Josh was a big part of that. So if you didn't hear last week, that would be definitely one of those podcasts to grab. Mark, it was fantastic. And thank you for your in charge of the dialogue tonight as well as music and and uh, starting a job and being sick, so you are indeed uh, indeed my hero. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thanks, Tim. You have a low bar for heroes. It's hard to say that. Um, we're happy to have Dan Hall with us on drums again tonight, everyone. Dan played last week with us and has played several times before, but it's good to have him back tonight. This is a song, Mission of My Soul. We've done this a bunch of times in the past, although I don't know how long it's been. It's been a while probably since we've done it. Um, but I, I thought this song actually fit pretty well with where I think at least part of the dialogue will go tonight as we talk uh, and wrap up this series with the gospel according to J.K. Rowling. And uh, one of the themes that, that I personally think comes out of the Harry Potter books pretty strongly is this idea of, of building a community and friendship and that uh, she keeps coming back time and time and time and time again to the friendship between Harry and Ron and Hermione. And I think that's 
um, while it seems like a very, very simple part of the story, I think is deeply profound, actually, because it, it makes it into a story that's not uh, the individualistic uh, hero uh, like many Western stories are, the individual hero who goes out and slays Grendel the monster and, and uh, you know, wins victory for the people. Um, instead, she brings it back to, to a, a dependency with each other um, on friendship. That's why I picked this song out, and that's where I think this song uh, takes us tonight. This is Mission of My Soul. When you need me, I'll stand beside you. I'm there for you, wherever you go. When you're hungry, Satisfy you. That's the mission of my soul. Yeah. 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 Now we know how it goes. Let's take it back to the top. Everybody. Well, baby, I'm your man, 
Just tell me when do we go You'll be my flower And I'll be your gardener Cause that's the mission Of my soul Hey, as Mark alluded to, this summer we've been doing a series that we've, we've enjoyed a bunch doing with and, and for you on the gospel according to. And one of the things that's been uh, meaningful to us as a community is that we understand that we never read any text, be it scriptures or anything else, uh, without our experiences. We bring our experiences, we bring our lives, we bring the things that have wounded our lives as well as the, the, the greatest celebrations of our lives to every text. And uh, we're aware that uh, when we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about some abstract thing that you're trying to figure out, a riddle or a message, but something that's deeply dynamic as we talk about the work of God in this world. It's dynamic. It can't be just encapsulated into a, a statement. And for us, the, the gospel is not only something that was enacted in the life of Christ, but it's something that is being revealed and unfolds in, in our lives today and in the world today. And so this summer, we've... Uh, basically kind of undertaken a series of texts or lens that we think are significant in helping us understand uh, the gospel. It's been great. We've, I think we've done HBO's The Wire, and uh, we looked at the lives of children. We uh, did Karl Marx one week. We've done uh, a whole range of things, Brooks, Bruce Springsteen last, uh, last week, and just things that give us some sort of, of understanding or vision that we might not see in the, in the text that we call the gospel. And tonight, we're uh, doing uh, the gospel according to J.K. Rowling, and uh, there's going to be a group of us that are going to kind of do this together. So uh, looking forward to that conversation. But before we start it, we always want to give you a chance to stand up and greet the people that you're around. So if you're around somebody that you don't know, please introduce yourself. It's a great time to get a snack or a coffee, and in a few moments we will call you back together and we'll begin our conversation. So please stand up, greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. So we're very informal, so feel free as we, this conversation goes on to continue to grab snacks or coffee or all those things. Uh, but I want to thank uh, a group of people that have been willing to join us in conversation. Uh, Gail Thomas, who I would say, Gail, you're probably one of the reasons that I read Harry Potter. Because Gail has a couple of the greatest boys of all time, Ian and Jordan. And uh, I think... This was probably back, Jim, when we were preparing or had come back from Kenya when Beacon of Hope had got started. And we were having a meeting at an Ethiopian restaurant. You know how Ethiopian food is. You're like just plunging into the spongy bread 
read, and uh, and Gail's boys were both reading um, the fifth book, I think, of that series. They both had their copy. It never dawned on me that people actually bought multiple copies uh, for their family. How many copies did the Thomases buy? Three copies, uh, because Gail is one of those people who uh, reads it in a night, no matter what it is. So she, you probably stayed up all night, but your boys were just reading like wild men during, I mean, that, they barely came up for food. And I was like, if, if Ian and Jordan think this is that good, then it must be that good. So, uh, so I want to, so Gail is that. Laura Wooten also, thank you for joining us. And Sarah Busman, who is not a Harry Potter expert, uh, but uh, last week she was our non Bruce Springsteen fan, so you've kind of you've kind of fulfilling kind of a unique role in the community here, and and Mark Williams is around somewhere, right? Do we is Mark uh, nearby? He'll he'll be back. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, before these guys started commenting, one of the things we wanted to do is to give you a chance as a community to kind of react first. Uh, this is your chance to say, you know, I read that and it was pretty good, or it really sucked. Why are y'all talking about that at church? Or uh, or what are your reactions to people who have read or not read this huge J.K. You see, Josh has a, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because he worked in a bookstore when like the the seventh book was coming out. How many times did you have to say that the seventh book was on sale, Josh? That's some thousands of times so uh so josh is displeased tonight and was unwilling to participate but uh, uh but <laughs> but reactions from the rest of you guys about uh the value or lack of value of of this mega selling uh text what do you think oh sorry welcome back rachel by the way we've missed you <laughs> And you know, Rachel, that's been a big theme this summer is that we've been thinking about what are texts that give people a sense of hope? Uh, what, are, what are ones that give them an ability to read other texts? That's a wonderful, uh, that's a wonderful testimony. Any others? Yes, Andrew. So I'm not a huge J.K. Rowling fan. I have read books. For me, what's interesting is the, the way they're an indication of the way that the culture we live in, the Western culture, materialist culture, tries to deny the supernatural. And people are really fascinated by the supernatural. Because I've read perhaps a lot of earlier fantasy literature, um, including obviously C.S. Lewis and and his predecessors and George MacDonald and so on. I see see what she's doing. Um, And my view doesn't do a good job. For me, is the fact that Lewis, for instance, and McDonald has to write and 
Falcon had to create thanks so they could talk about the supernatural because it was excluded from their world. Think about things with Tolkien writing, creating a fantasy genre. The professor at Oxford, at the height of modernism, right? So Freud and Marx are the gods. And, and, and he just he rebels against the community by writing this fantasy genre, drawing on ancient literature. Rowling's doing a similar thing. She's talking about the supernatural. And even in the church, we exclude the supernatural um, in the Western church. We don't talk about the supernatural. And yet, of course, I'm from Africa, and in Africa, almost everybody knows that the supernatural is there, just like almost every other culture, apart from Western culture, knows that the supernatural is there, and has throughout time. And so, to me, it's interesting because it's the return of the supernatural, no matter how much it has to come back to the fiction, but no matter how much Western culture tries to suppress the supernatural, it comes back. And, and it comes back in a very specific form. It comes back as a battle between good and evil. And, uh, and some, some accounts of the supernatural try to, I guess, pretend that it's just sort of generic or neutral supernatural. But almost every account of the supernatural talks about a battle of Britain. You know, and I know a lot of people in our community, we are, we're all in different worlds, a lot of people in helping professions or education, all kinds of things. But it is interesting that we have lived in a world that for many, many years uh, has been so dominated by a worldview that if it can't be measured, if it can't be, if it can't be held, then it's not real. And, and that's, a, that's a, a very powerful uh, statement. Anybody else? A reaction? I hate it. I love it. Uh, those are two good positive testimonies. But, uh, but anybody else? <laughs> but I just have like really enjoyed them and I see why they were popular. So like I'm honestly I'm glad I pulled out because it was a neat thing for us to be together for Matt to like see my reactions and just for me to ask him like, hey, I think this is what's gonna happen and he say, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I um I started reading these when uh, I guess Keenan was in the first grade and Kendall was kindergarten or whatever, and it was I, I did it begrudgingly because it looked stupid to me. Even though I love uh, fantasy and creative things, and I do remember uh, was joking like bedtime and reading time kept getting earlier and earlier. Like, hey kids, it's five o'clock, it's book time. <laughs> and of course, they were ready to read them on their own after they were you know second grade. So I was I was cut out of it, so I had to read it myself. And I apologize. I, I look around the room and I. I probably can imagine there's probably at least one or two marital ultimatums in the room where one spouse said to the other, you know, we just have to do this if, if we're a we. So apologies for those of you who have been, who've been uh, recipients of that. One more. Anybody else? on? Uh, yeah, Mary Ann. Um, I grew up like Andrew, but probably literally before Andrew, uh, reading a lot of Uh, 
Harry Potter books when I read them. And I think I read them all the way through twice and maybe a few of them an additional time. And I enjoyed her very much. She's witty and she has this sort of a, there's almost a sarcastic tone sometimes in her wordplay and her names for things that is really kind of fun. Um, but what gives some added depth is her ability to tell a good story and the relationships of friends and human emotions and the fact that sacrifice of one person for another is considered um, so foundational to the meaning of human life. Um, which I think she gets predominantly picks up from the Christian parts that are floating through the culture even though she's not as far as I know, an active Christian. But um, it strikes me that um, that one of the limitations I see with this hungering after um, the transcendent or the, the what do you call it, Andrew, the um, supernatural, there are a lot of people now in our culture who are wanting to have some sense of the supernatural but don't want it to be God. And um, she, she talks about Christmas in England in the book, but there's never a reference that I could see to God, not even an oblique one like there is in the Tolkien stories. Um, and, and so looking back at it from a distance, there's something a little bit unsatisfying about them to me, even though I enjoy them and I think they're a good read. Um, and, and I, I was touched and moved a lot uh, in reading them. And I, I told Mark when I bought the book, The Gospel According to Harry Potter, and, uh, which was an early book that was out there before she didn't finish the series. So I, I do think there's worthwhile things in them. And yet, like many of these other figures that were doing the gospel according to, some of them are picking up on parts of the gospel that they are sort of through the culture, but they show us a piece that maybe we've forgotten. Um, and we benefit from seeing that piece and having that uh, renovated in our vision. But they're not the whole thing. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's a, that's a good perspective. It's one of the things that we've said throughout the whole series that one of the things that we're not trying to do is commit everybody to the lens because we understand that we all have different political, economic, that sort of perspectives, uh, cultural perspectives. But what does the lens point us to? So I'm actually going to turn this over to uh, the, the, the group here. I have really only one question for them. But uh, here's how I'm, I'm hoping that you can participate in this is that uh, I would love for them to comment to each other uh, as time allows. But you can too. Questions, comments, thoughts. Uh, uh, again, uh, I, one of the things that I think you'll, if you're not a person who's read these books and that wasn't an expectation at all, uh, uh, separate yourself from the book. But the, the point that's being made from the book I think will be helpful. And these guys all have kind of different levels of experience of that. But I'm going to just uh, maybe start with Mark, if that's okay. 
And uh, Mark, you can kind of guide us in any direction you want to. But I asked them just in preparation to think about a theme that comes from the text that in some way gives them a window to the gospel. Maybe something that we, we don't talk about enough or don't, don't think about enough or don't consider enough or, or you didn't consider enough until you, until you read this. And, uh, and Mark, Mark will be kind of guiding us through the, the Mark text as well as we get to that. But, uh, but Mark, why don't you start us off on that? Okay, so I guess one of the things I'm interested in, I, I'm going to become the surrogate moderator, moderator for a second, but I'm interested in one thing from all of us is to hear a little bit more about what the hook was for us that pulled us into the story, um, that sort of pulled us into the text and, and captured some piece of our imagination. So let's, let's start with that, Sarah. I mean, I, um, from like a sort of down-to-earth point of view, this, the reason I started reading the books is because I started teaching. And um, and um, I can't remember if it was Miriam or, or Andrew mentioned that I think it was Miriam said like you know in order for a fantasy book to be sort of a compelling world you know it has to be sort of written in in a certain way and and you, that relies a lot on the author um, and boy was it a compelling world for all my students mm-hmm. right like super compelling so um, in such a way that like my not having read the books meant that like I was not able to connect with those students in, in a really important way. I think in the way that, that Rachel's talking about, you know, something really formative to them. Um, and so once I started reading them and, and something that really kept me going in them, I loved the books, but, but something that really kept me going with them is, is being able to share that with my students, being able to have that language and, and that interest, which has a lot to do with what we're talking about later, but... Um, I think one of the easiest tasks for me as a mom was to share my children's books. Um, it, it was the funnest thing about being a mom, was to kind of read alongside of them and see what they were reading. And actually, I read Harry Potter. I started it before they did. One of my friends suggested that I read it. And I think the thing that hooked me was the sense of humor. And there's um, this whole idea of the magical world colliding with the non-magical world makes for a lot of misunderstandings and funny situations. And Harry's family, the Dursleys, are staunchly non-magical and don't want anything to do with magic. And as it kind of impinges on their lives and makes itself obvious and they can't ignore it, there's, there's a lot of funny stuff that happens. And that was the hook for me. Um, I came to Harry Potter late in the game because I grew up in a pretty fundamentalist, conservative home where it was frowned upon to read Harry Potter. It was okay to read Tolkien and Lewis and all of that with witches and wizards, but not Harry Potter. Um, So I read it um, out of a lot of curiosity. Um, And I was hooked immediately, like what Miriam Ann was saying about her, her sarcasm, her humor, her creativity, um, and then the story, of course, is really amazing, and I, I loved it. So, I'm reminded with the, the humor part. I was, I, I was looking at it uh, t- this morning, and I, I had forgotten this thing that happens in Deathly Hallows, the last book, where, um, where they're talking about fairy tales. And, and because they just received this fairy tale that 
Harry and Hermione didn't know about because they didn't grow up in the wizarding world. So th there was this whole tale, the tale of Beetle the Bard, that they didn't know anything about. And so Hermione mentioned something about Cinderella and Snow White. And Ron, who grew up in the wizarding world, said, Snow White, what is that, some kind of disease? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I was certainly hooked by... I, I think she revels in her imagination. Like she, like she revels in a sense of creativity that I, I think Andrew is absolutely right to, to point out that there, there's a sense in which the world that she's created does not have quite the same depth that maybe Tolkien has. But I would, I would argue that in part that's because she concentrates very much on a here and now narrative way more, even though Tolkien certainly does that. Tolkien has invested so much more in the historicity of Middle Earth than um, than Joanne ha has in uh, in the world of Harry Potter. I think that she is very much prioritizing the here and now aspect of what what's going on relationally. Yeah. And I think we actually miss some of that in Tolkien. Actually, I don't, I don't think we see as much of that in Tolkien as we do. I think it's interesting. I was um, as like not a Harry Potter expert. I was like doing some googling last night, <laughs> and um, it's funny that that you mentioned that because it seems like for a lot of people, self-included, like there's a lot of you have you have some love of those characters in a way that maybe the the place is not or the history of the place is not as loved, but the characters are really loved. And um, I was googling and I was looking up the sort of main female character Hermione and like I don't know fifteen different links came out that like apparently J.K. Rowling came out like in February and said that Hermione was supposed to end up with Harry Potter and not Ron, right? And that was the response. And so like all of these people were like, oh my God, like you've shattered the whole Harry Potter universe because you changed the outcome, not even in the book of one character. And so that speaks to like she has this really powerful command of character, if that's the yeah. case. Yeah. And say about that. Like, our, our reaction to that was like, no, she's not allowed to do that. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So, in the sense, like, the story is probably even bigger, bigger than her. Absolutely. No, I mean, most people, even I think in this interview that she did, she even said like something like, I know I'm going to be like, she didn't say blowing people's minds, but she was like, I know I'm going to be like ruining this for people because a lot of people had that reaction. And I think too, I mean this, so this, I love what you just said, Britt, that, that hooks right in for me too, like on an emotional level of, of what attracted me to the story. Like, yes, the humor and the characters and all that were wonderful, but I think I started reading them and I've read the whole series like, Seven or eight times. So, like, I'm way into these. Nerd. So, like, I, I really do know these books. You need a job. Fairly well. <laughs> <laughs> that was before grad school, so that's just a lot of other reading during grad school. Um, but, but I started reading them as uh, Goblet of Fire was out, which was the fourth book. So I, that's when I kind of started reading was, was at that moment. And that, so I, I even came in like in book four, not, not the very beginning. But I will say, I mean, one of the things that, that – that really hooked me in emotionally was, and I, and I think this is really common for this type of book where I was going through some certain things in my life where the books provided a certain kind of emotional 
connection or sustenance for me, much like you're trying to find connection with your students or with your children, you know, or trying to come to terms with your past and like what your family of origin kind of has to say about this whole side of you that you're exploring. For, for me, my father died in 2002, and there were ways that, um, I don't want to say that Dumbledore became a, a surrogate father for me, but there, there are ways that I, there, there was a therapist I worked with last year. I, I'm a, I, I work in psychotherapy, and, and I was working at Duke last year. And one of the other therapists in, in the organization I was working as a part of, she said that when she's dealing with students, with, with college students now, who don't have a great picture of a family structure or when they don't have a good picture of a father that she will often point them to Dumbledore as being like a father type figure who is kind and who cares for others and is you know later on in the books you see that Dumbledore is very much fallible but you don't get that for a while so anyway so for me part of the the connection for me was emotionally where I was at that time it really grabbed hold of me and gave me a family to grab hold of that makes sense and you know, you think about, oh, sorry, one of the challenges, and we've had this come up here in conversations in a mass way, is if I were to say gospel, God, those type of things, we, you would have the full range of reaction. And we've had that in this community. Uh, one of the last times we kind of did a reaction to that, some people responded like, this is the good news. This is the thing that gives me meaning and purpose in life. And there were other people in the community that said, this is the thing that was rammed down my throat. This is the thing that I fear that religious people have constructed to offer others as a way to bind them into a certain vision of life. And so we have probably a full range of emotions in this room when you talk about uh, the gospel and God's work. And it's interesting that what you see in some of these conversations is that understanding of gospel is not being found as a metaphor in another t- text, but it's actually being informed. It's being changed. It's, being, it's a dynamic that's been impacted by other texts. So I say that as a, a sensitivity to uh, this room, having a great sense of diversity for some of those things. Who did I cut off? I missed this. Yeah. Um, I was just saying, I, I mean, when you mentioned like how there are lots, you know, lots of millions and millions of kids in the world love this book and a lot of adults, and you know, that sort of question of like, well, why? And I mean, obviously, one, just great stories, great stories, and witches and adventure and things like that are cool, but it kind of just makes me think like, and this is apply to everyone in this room, is the, if you think about the most, the point in your life when you were most powerless, when you're a kid, yeah. you you know when you're really little, you're always powerless. But when you're in elementary school, it's like you're told what to do, you're told what to read, you're told where to go. You don't have any choice. Like you're in your parents under your parents' roof. Like you you are super powerless in that in that case and stuff. And and you see in the world there are bigger things going on, whether it's the bully at your school or the kids who can have better clothes or cooler than you. But you also know in the world big problems, and it's like, in these books, I guess, there's just this chance to, for these little people in Orphan Harry Potter to, to kind of go do something big, and I think it's ending for a lot of kids. Some people grow up and become adults and remain powerless and keep going in that direction, and it's like, these books can kind of appeal to powerless situations, but like losing your dad, there's nothing you can do about that. And it's kind of interesting when you then connect that to the gospel. I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, Carpenter's son, like, just 
the story of this dominant Roman Empire, it's just like, it becomes, you know, as in the West, called the greatest story ever told. I mean, there's just something so powerful that in a world full of entertainers and celebrities and this and that, that the little person, that you can start dealing with these very big things and good and evil and all of that. I think that's what makes all of these stories compelling, and our ultimate gospel story is that story. It's, it's so interesting that you say that, especially, you know, we're, we're coming to this, we're coming to J.K. Rowling at the end of our Gospel According to series, and we're about to start a new series, and, and we've sort of spent a lot of time talking about the least of these, right? Like a lot of the, the people that we've been discussing, the wire, or the, um, when we talked about Nicola or Bruce Springsteen, or, or Maya Angelou, um, We've been talking about sort of the least of these and the moments when these people are really powerless. And I think our gospel text has something to say about, like, what does that look like when you're super powerless? And how can all those kids, like, how can that story be a happy story? Yeah. Let's, let's, take, a look at the, let's take a look at the passage, the scriptural passage for tonight, in fact. <coughs> The story occurs in a couple of places in the Gospels, but this, this particular one is from Mark uh, chapter 2, 1 through 12. And I'll just read and just follow along with me. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that, so many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. As he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Okay, so I, I want to talk for a minute, you know, about there, there are a lot of different passages we could have chosen, you know, tonight that, that could have interfaced with the text of Harry Potter. This one came to mind, and, and it would be easy to stop this story like halfway rather than take it all the way through to the end, um, through, through the end of verse 12. But, but I want to hear a little bit of comments from folks out there and, and here as well as to what... Um, where might this be going? Like, are there connection points? I certainly alluded to some uh, before before singing uh, the last song there, but would love to hear from you guys as to what's jumping out in this story that that seems to be jiving with the Harry Potter world a little bit. to another person to actually say, well, there's no room to go in the door, 
How can we take the building apart to get this person in? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, I think, that's the connection between my love between the books. And Absolutely. Other thoughts? Anyone? I think there's a certain way in which this story um, and the Harry Potter books as well uh, are about power and authority sort of coming from unexpected places, right? So um, the sort of scarred kid may not be the one that you think is going to have the power to sort of have this revolutionary effect on the world. And similarly here, the, the, the quarrel that the scribes seem to be having is there's no way that the power lies here because we, we know it lies somewhere else. Um, and yet suddenly, like because of this seemingly simple uh, act, maybe not so simple, I don't know how thick the roof was, right? But this seemingly simple act of, of compassion and, and, and friendship, suddenly the power is, is present in a way that they couldn't have fully accounted for. So I think maybe that's something that connects us here. You know, we've raised that point several times, and, and we've talked about this a lot when we talk about community organizing as well, is this naive worldview that imagines that there's no power whatsoever. And, and Power does not matter in the world, uh, and it's interesting because um, it's it's easy, and it has been read read in the West many times. The gospel is not about power; it's it's about uh, God having done things and maybe tapping into God's power or something like that. But what's interesting about this story is it doesn't deny power. Is as Josh says, it's provocative in that it locates power in a really unexpected place, and I think that's that's. Part of your point with uh, the Harry Potter text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. I thought maybe if there are other thoughts, that's great. If not, we can. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be repeating what Sir Keith just said, but maybe not. Um, I think that that one of the things that we see in this passage is um, imagination that that people in um, that had this friend were thinking outside the box and uh, not just doing things the ordinary way. And I see a lot of that happening with Harry and his friends, that they were willing to believe that there was something really amazing going on in Harry and his relationship to Voldemort and how the story was playing out. There were they were ready to believe that almost every page in every book something new would be revealed. And they wouldn't just block it off and say, no, that can't be. But they were willing to entertain the thought. And I, I think that that is one of the challenges that we face as followers of the gospel is that we learn to have a similar imagination where we can see where God is working and not just um, block things off and say no that couldn't be if you don't mind it's just it's really interesting that you you guys both said that and you too but the and (laughs) 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 but um it's interesting that you know we're we're sort of talking about these books in which um you're you're sort of sitting around these kids right it's like a bunch of kids and like um we you know, sort of delved into this when we did our Gospel According to Children night, where it's like, 
who, like, who would think? Like, what a weird thing to think. Ah, uh, well, we can't go in the front door. I know. How about we dig a hole in the top? That's totally going to work. And then you're like, dudes, let's all dig a hole in the top. And everybody's like, okay. And they all do it, right? So there's almost like this childish, it's almost like a way of sort of viewing power and viewing authority and viewing what's possible through the eyes of a child. That's something that I appreciate in J.K. Rowling's books too and I think that sort of ties in with, with what Jim and SK are saying that reminds me of a quote that that uh, Jenny says in fact I did, I did not plan that but. <laughs> I, think she said, I think it's in Order of the Phoenix I'm trying to remember she said something to Harry about um, she said something, Harry has come up with some plan and she said something Jenny said something to Harry like you know she says well if you, if you grow up with Fred and George as your older brothers then you, you know, then like you get used to the idea that anything is possible if you have enough nerve. <laughs> sure. Sure. I think the the so so I think one of the places, Jim and, and SK, that you see this in the books, I think is you see this really profoundly in the final book, um, Deathly Hallows, where Harry has decided, and we won't do. I don't. Are we, are we allowed to do spoilers or not at this point? I think it's time. It's, it's been around for a while. I mean, you guys. You guys have kind of had a while to do this thing. Um, so, so Harry in the last book is, is going to go after Voldemort. And, and he's decided the whole thing's going to be way too dangerous um, to ever ask his friends to join in. I mean, you know, he, he's just like, I'm the only one that can do this, and I'm just the one that's going to have to do this. And so he's trying to tell Ron and Hermione, I'm, I'm going to be going this alone. And they, not only have they said, not only do they say, like, you're, you're an idiot, we are coming with you, but Hermione has already packed their bags and has it all ready to go. And she's, Harry hasn't actually prepared anything. Like, he doesn't have, he doesn't even have a coat with him. To. That's right, yeah. He couldn't go alone if he wanted to. But, but Hermione's already packed all the books they're going to need and all the, like, everything they're going to need to learn while they're out there. So, I, to me, that's like that picture of friendship that won't let go, you know, that, that, that thing of I'll dig through the roof, even though you haven't thought of that possibility yet. I think also, um, I, I, I'm not sure which version, I, I may have stuck this version in, but in some versions of that text, what's really amazing is that Jesus doesn't look always at the man who's, who's lowered. He looks at the friends, and because, because of their faith, uh, you are forgiven. And there's this sense that we have such a deeply individualistic culture that we feel like, and I feel like this is a pastor. I've had a million conversations, and, and, I, and, and me too, I, I struggle with this, where we feel like God is evaluating us and that God is evaluating us personally and that God is not looking at our connection to the world, the connection to the environment, the connection to a greater community. Uh, we say this in a mass way when we do our minister's liturgy, which is kind of our right of belonging. We don't believe anyone in our community embodies every value all the time or even any of the time, but it's a community we're trying to live into these values. And I I think that's a a message of hope that we desperately need is to think that it is not a personal race to be good with God. And the people around you are not running their own race, but are, are props to your race. But what if we start thinking about much more of a corporate race of peoples trying to be formed in the beauty and the imagination of the gospel? The game becomes something entirely different. And you know, having uh, uh, not quite as old as Gail and Jim's kids, but almost there, having had a kid in college and, and a high school senior, I'm just aware of how 
how many times the world has been translated to me in a competitive way where kids are struggling to be better than somebody else artistically, athletically, academically, constant measuring, constant um, um, my uh, daughter's uh, soccer team uh, won a, a, a tournament today, and I was behind a, a boys' team that was getting ready to go on stage to get their trophies. And what do you think the boys were doing? They were evaluating every girl on the team without um, imagining that there was a parent standing behind them. And, and you know, the world is just so given to us in a, a competitive, evaluative way that we think when it comes to God, it must work that way. And the irony is that the gospel keeps giving us portraits where it's community. It's the people of Israel that have failed or the people of Israel that have been faithful. Uh, Crazy friends who tear up a roof have been faithful and that means all the difference in the world. So there's something profoundly hopeful in that. Yeah, and and I think I can't remember. Actually, I think you brought this up this morning in an email, Laura. But talking about the, the, the people that Harry chooses to align himself with, the friends that he chooses are bizarre friends. (laughs) <laughs> I think I liked the unexpectedness of that. Um, and I, this week I decided to start rereading The Order of the Phoenix. Just kind of picked it off my shelf. And I'm um, in the order is Mundungus Fletcher, who's a thief. Um, and, um, you know, the Weasleys, who are kind of a working class, poor family. Um, you know, Hermione, who is not from magical parents and is considered a mud led by Voldemort and, and, and then you also see that juxtaposed against um, Voldemort's the Death Eaters who are the pure race and they're the, the wealthy and the connected and the, the people that are in power and I like the fact that everywhere you go whether it's Dobby the house elf or you know like you said Neville and Luna I love Luna um, <laughs> um, that it's unexpected and, it, and it's kind of the the pure in heart rather than the pure of the blood or whatever that you see and that make a difference. I think that makes a ton of sense, especially with, you know, what Josh was saying about, you know, this whole idea of power in the gospel and, um, and what sort of power looks like and, um, when we see in this gospel text, um, we see these sort of powerless, what most people would say are, are powerless friends, and an even more powerless paralytic. Um, and yet they are doing this sort of real work that Jesus is looking for. So I think that's a great point. We've talked a lot about the friendships between Harry and Hermione and Ron, and those are the, the central characters, but, you know, Harry has a whole army of friends by the end of the books, and they include these characters that you've mentioned who are um, unlikely and unexpected, but it's unexpected that this many of the student body and the faculty will rally around Harry in this apparently doomed um, attempt to stand for what is right, and it has that sense of of um, futility that I think the Lord of the Rings has that, you know, how's this little hobbit with this going to destroy this ring? It's never going to happen. And there's that same sense of futility as Voldemort has already taken over the Ministry of Magic. He's taken over all the mechanisms of the society. 
he um, infiltrated the faculty, and yet this little group of students and a few faculty are going to stand for what's right, even if they die doing it. conversation on power is that like I believe in a, in a triune God and so to me that means that, that power is inherently relational um, and so it's not just that we're like seeing power in places where we don't normally see it but that it's the definition of power is completely different mm-hmm. um, and so if you see Voldemort in his whole like power over um, and, and what I think what I see with, with Harry and Hermione all the people who gather around him is this relational power um, and I think what we see in the gospel, what we see in Harry Potter, is that power over um, isn't really power, and it doesn't actually. Yeah, yeah. Voldemort has a bunch of people around him too, but they're there because he has uh, forced them to be there through magical means or fear or coercion of some sense, and they're serving him not out of their own volition, and it's it's very not helpful to him. Mm-hmm. I was just going to follow up and say. Exactly that. But that, you know, I think, um, you know, we're about to sort of come into a busy time in Emmaus Way, right? Like, we're getting, I see a lot of new people. I can't wait to meet all of you new people. Um, But this is sort of our busy season when when we like to sort of talk about um, the ways that, that we view Emmaus Way and what Emmaus Way means to us. And, and I think we're, we're very, um, this is a visual representation of, of us saying, you know, um, we feel like we have more power when we do things together, and and in a lot of ways, Brett, that's what you're what you're saying is that you know you're not um, Harry and on all these crazy characters like that shouldn't make up an army but do really successfully. They're doing that because you know they are um, they recognize the ways in which having that kind of faith and and working together means more than like one dude being super scary and controlling everybody else. I think that's a great point. I guess um, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up this part of it, which is sad because there's like so many, like Gail sent out an email this morning that had like five or six like incredible themes they're like well you could talk about that for an hour that's great <laughs> so we're not going to get to any of those probably now but that's okay there uh, there's wonderful things there and so one of the things i guess i want to impress upon all of you is just that the power of the imagination is rich and very much like what rachel said that that you that, that we, we become formed as people, and that includes spiritually as well as intellectually and emotionally. We become f- formed by, uh, by the stories that we tell and the stories that we listen to. And this is such a wonderfully powerful story that's transformative uh, because of all these things that have come out tonight in terms of the way that, uh, that the people care for each other, the characters care for each other in the stories. And you do come to feel like they're, they're part of your family, too. You do feel like you come to know them. Um, and, and this is my this is my final uh, little little thing. I love this quote from um, this is from from the end of Goblet of Fire, and and Harry has just been through uh, through an awful awful thing towards the end of the book, um, and and Professor McGonagall, who's 
one of the professors there at Hogwarts, which is the school that they all go to. Does anybody not know this stuff <laughs> at this point? I mean, Harry dies at the end, too. I don't know if you guys know that. <laughs> he's dismembered. It's unclear whether he's dead. <laughs> right. um, okay, so, um, or, or does he? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't die. Maybe that's for you all to read and find out, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, all right. Joel thinks he's stuck. We'll, we'll have a beer over that one later. Um, so this is, this is a great thing, I think, at the end, that I think about in my work therapeutically with people a lot, about how we are reforming um, the ways that we think about things and what's important. One, one of the things in therapy that you talk about a lot is you, you will, I will have people come in who might say, like, oh, it's, I don't want to visit the past. The past is behind me. I don't want to have to think about that stuff. It's just I need to move on and concentrate about, about tomorrow and how do I make my life better. And I, I just love this right here because Harry's gone through this terrible thing and he's there with Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall in Dumbledore's office. And McGonagall says this, Come along, Potter, she whispered. The thin line of her mouth was twitching as though she was about to cry. Come along, hospital wing. No, said Dumbledore sharply. Dumbledore, he ought to... Look at him, he's been through enough tonight. He will stay, Minerva, because he needs to understand, said Dumbledore curtly. Understanding is the first step to acceptance, and only with acceptance can there be recovery. He needs to know who has put him through the ordeal he has suffered tonight, and why. I realize that goes in a little bit different direction than where the rest of this conversation went, but for me that is just so, so powerful. Um, as we move towards the next, uh, the next section tonight, confession and absolution, one of the things that I was struck with is, is the fact that Harry is an orphan and that this is something that comes out time and time again, that there are a lot of experiences he hasn't had. He hasn't had this loving family. Uh, and as a result of that, that has warped him in certain ways. Um, I think that, that learning our own stories uh, is an essential part to our own growth as, as individuals that then prepares us to be in community with others. It prepares us for friendship with others. It prepares us for our own families as we form and forge them around us. Um, this song that we're going to do for confession uh, is a song that Amy Lou Harris uh, does off of her Wrecking Ball album. It's called Orphan Girl. And I think that this is a wonderful song about forging a family when you have had none.
But I'll share my troubles If you go my way I have no mother No father No sister No Ties of kinship, I have not known them. I know no mother, no father, no sister, no brother. I am an orphan girl. by a wonderful songwriter from Canada named Jan Arden. We sometimes do a song called Saved that she wrote. I love this song because I think it is just so, so simple and it's both in its message but also just quarterly, musically where she goes is it's not very complex but I think it really meets the lyric head on in a way that I think is really beautiful and really redemptive. I don't mind it 
So I'm sure that uh, Laura was not the only one who grew up either in or around the sort of controversy that surrounded Harry Potter, that it was somehow satanic because of the way that it uh, talked about things like witchcraft and wizardry. Um, And what I found myself thinking this week as we were sort of contemplating the books and and contemplating the texts um, is that... Uh, in all of the ways that that can be hurtful um, to sort of name those texts as, as satanic and, and, and as of the devil, I think what I would want to do with us as a community is actually not lose that. Now that may sound counterintuitive, I promise it will make sense. One of the things I was reminded of, um, someone who came up a couple of times in our conversation is C.S. Lewis. Um, for those of you who don't know, in addition to being a fiction writer, he was also a scholar of, uh, of medieval literature and, and culture. And 
one of the things he always taught, one of the things that he did for me at least um, when I was in college is he was one of the first people to articulate very generously the way that people in the Middle Ages lived. Um, so he would say, well, if people in the Middle Ages thought that there were dragons flying around, it's not because they were idiots. It's because they read it in Aristotle, and if Aristotle said it, you should believe it, which is a pretty compelling argument. <laughs> uh, maybe I haven't seen it, but it's in these texts that I've read, so that's pretty important. And I remember a line that he had when he was talking about the burning of witches in the Middle Ages, and he said, when there are sort of witches that are being burned, the difference between that society and our society is not that we aren't that violent or cruel, it's just that we don't believe in witches. That's the only difference. If we actually thought there were agents of the devil in our midst, we would probably freak out as well. <laughs> and so that reframing of the question, that sort of reframing of what's being talked about is I think what I mean when I say I want to maintain something of that impulse to condemn certain stories. But I think as we've shown tonight, condemning a story like Harry Potter in some ways doesn't make sense given the fact that the central tenets of that story are so closely aligned with the gospel. These are, this is a story in which uh, we're asked to collaborate, we're asked to be compassionate to one another, we're told that power comes from unexpected places and that power can only be wielded in this sort of very particular relational way. So all week I've been trying to come up with a story that I might demonize uh, as sort of the anti-Harry Potter, the anti-gospel story. And I apologize for all of you in the room who love this story. I also love it. But I think the closest I could get is the movie Highlander. For those of you who have ever seen that movie, that is a mythology in some ways that cuts so dramatically against all of the things that we've tried to underscore tonight. We have a world in which all of this sort of eternal conflict is playing out around us in ways that we can never know or participate in. Um, there can only be one winner because there's not enough for everyone. And the only way to win is to kill, right? That is a story that as a community, if we got up tonight and said, we would like to ban Highlander as a story, I think I would in some ways feel more comfortable with that type of decision than I might with banning a story like Harry Potter, which is clearly describing a world that is so similar to the one that the gospel is trying to describe. And I think the way that you can tell maybe that Highlander doesn't quite measure up is how dramatically as well it cuts against what happens here at the table every week. There's no world in which uh, the, the, the characters of Highlander would be uh, sort of generous or compassionate for one another, that they would recognize the kingdom of God as it was made manifest in their midst in community. Um, and yet that's something that we get to see every week. So here at Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, which means all of you are invited. Come break bread, uh, pour wine and juice for one another, and as you do that, say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And remember that at our table, there can be much more than one. Welcome to the table.